Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I'm Kelly Vlahos, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host and friend Daniel Larson as we try to make sense of the myriad bad decisions Washington is making on any given day on very important issues of foreign policy and national security. Today, we'll be talking to Jessica Lee, Senior Research Fellow at the Quincy Institute, on her most recent, on the most recent developments in North Korea and the stalemated talks between Washington and Pyongyang. But first, let's talk about Russia and China. After a year of the Biden foreign policy, it looks like Washington has driven these two powers even further into each other's arms. As President Biden met with Chinese President Xi Jinping just ahead of the opening Olympic ceremony last week, They signed what is being called by the Washington Post a remarkable joint statement, a whopping 5,000 words. The paper described it as, quote, a blueprint for combined confrontation with the United States. The two countries endorsed each other's foreign policy wish lists, with Russia affirming China's opposition to, quote, any forms of independence of Taiwan and China denouncing further enlargement of NATO. China also agreed to buy 117.5 billion dollars worth of oil and gas from Russia. Dan, these two countries have been coming closer together for decades, as long ago as the 1970s under Brezhnev and Deng Xiaoping. Cooperation had mostly been about trade and economic development, but also respect for each other's borders. In 1994, Russia and China signed a declaration that identified each other as powers which are a major factor of maintaining peace and stability under the situation of an emerging polycentric international system, end quote. Later in 1997, Yeltsin and then Chinese leader Zhang Zemin signed the Chinese-Russian Joint Declaration on a Multipolar World and the Establishment of a New International Order, And in 2001, under Putin, Russia and China made their relationship official and signed the Treaty of Good Neighborliness and Friendly Cooperation, giving a legal structure to the many documents they had signed in the decade prior to Putin. Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has said that the treaty, quote, laid a reliable political and legal foundation of stable, predictable and multifaceted relations between the two countries. Now the two sides have no pack to come to each other's defense militarily, but they may eventually move in that direction if the U.S. keeps pushing both simultaneously, Russia over NATO and Ukraine and China over Taiwan. We have had two, we have a two front strategy of pressure uh, and even containment, Dan, but is this risking bringing these two major powers against us? Is this really what we want? I don't, well, you would think that it wouldn't be what we would want. We, we, in during the Cold War, we made a point of trying to, to split China and the Soviet Union, uh, and and did so successfully, uh, uh, beginning with the the opening to China under Nixon, and then with the, the formal recognition that followed uh, at the end of the seventies. Uh, and it's the that you would think you would want to try to separate these powers from each other, or at least to try to keep them from combining against you. Uh, that that would be a sounder strategy, but I think, in large part, because the U.S. has not taken Russia very seriously as a power in its own right, where they they see it as a declining power, as a decreasingly relevant power, they think that they can basically get away with uh, putting pressure on them and and goading them over these uh, 
over these differences that they have uh, between Russia and the West. Um, and they think that they can uh, essentially do that cost-free. I, I think we're beginning to see that it's not going to be cost-free, that the Russians will push back on those uh, attempts to pressure them. Uh, and they have alternatives. They have options to, to build partnerships with other states that are also uh, in an antagonistic relationship with us. And so uh, I think what we're seeing is, I mean, in some sense, it's, it's a natural balancing against U.S. hegemony. Or, or, the, or the the faltering U.S. hegemony that is now coming to an end, and uh, you, you listed all of those uh, various statements that the Russians and Chinese have made together, uh, in which they emphasize a, a multipolar world, a, a multilateral world, in which uh, Russia and China imagine themselves to be playing major roles, and and really that's uh, the the issue at stake, whether uh, they're going to continue to submit to a U.S. led uh, order, or if they're going to try to, to craft an order in which they have a larger say and a larger role. And, and really, and that, that's also what's going on in the Ukraine crisis to some extent, uh, is the, the Russians insisting that they have a real say in European security arrangements uh, that they have been shut out of up until now. And uh, now that they have uh, greater uh, military capabilities and, and a little bit more clout uh, than they used to, uh, they're going to use that to try to, to change uh, the, the way that things are, are set up. So we we don't want uh, we don't want to be driving them together, but we've already done it uh, over the last twenty years. And I, I don't know that you can actually then uh, split them apart again after having stoked hostility uh, and 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 built up so much resentment over the last uh, couple of decades. I know a lot of China hawks uh, have this idea that it should be possible to, to separate the Russians off because the Russians don't want to be the junior partner to China. But I think they would rather be a junior partner in a, in a multipolar system uh, than be uh, the constant doormat in a US-led system. And so I think Russia has already made its choice. And in that, in that sense, I think it's probably too late to, to fix what we've already screwed up. What do you think the optics were of Putin and Xi meeting and signing this statement ahead of the uh, Olympic opening ceremonies and during what, you know, we, we, we all consider a crisis over Ukraine. What was he trying, what was he trying to do there? Uh, well, I think I mean, one thing they, they were trying to signal uh, Russian support for China uh, as, as the host of the Olympics, since the U.S. has made uh, a point of uh, at least issuing a, a diplomatic boycott of the games uh, it's, is Russia's way of showing that they're uh, fully on board with China as, as the host. Uh, and, and they're basically putting out a, a big propaganda statement, which is what the joint statement was, uh, basically rejecting the U.S. framing of all of the issues uh, that are points of contention between us and them. And so they, they start off the statement with this rather uh, almost comical bit about how uh, you know every nation gets to define democracy in its own way, and and everyone is in favor of democracy, and we're not going to let you impose your definition on us. Uh, which is, I mean, it's it's interesting that they feel compelled to say that. It's also sort of curious that they they put that right at the front, uh, as if to say, uh, you know, you're you're trying to define the the conflict of our times in in this ideological fashion, and and we we simply reject your entire framing of, of 
the global system. Um, I think given the buildup around Ukraine, I think it was also Putin's way of, of trying to show that things are uh, status quo, business as usual. Uh, the, the, the official Russian line is that they're not even threatening an invasion, right? So they're, they're trying to say that not, nothing has nothing is uh, in an emergency situation right now. Uh, everything is uh, essentially uh, normal. And, and so we're going to proceed as though it were normal. Uh, and I, you know, perhaps there's some sort of psychological game there where they're trying to, to make Western leaders second guess themselves or, or doubt their own assessments. I don't know. Uh, but, but it seems like they're, they're trying to uh, basically celebrate their position and, and their, their growing influence uh, and, and to use that as a, a foundation for building a stronger relationship. Yeah, there seems to be some gaslighting going on a little bit. I mean, uh, like you said, Putin travels to, to China. You know, he is there for the opening ceremonies. He's like, Bus- business as usual. Uh, we're, in, we're in no crisis. Me- me- meanwhile, we're all hunkering down as though the war is upon us. Uh, you know, man, man your battle stations. So I, I get that it, it, it's all optics. And um, what what what's interesting to me, uh, along with the five thousand word statement, is the suggestion, and this is true in, in fact, that if the United States moves to sanction Russia, wouldn't China have its back in terms of the things that they couldn't get? through uh, Western sources and banks uh, wouldn't, you know, aren't they signaling like, hey, we got a powerful friend over here. So if you think you're going to slap maximum pressure sanctions on us, uh, we have a way around it, just like Iran has has found ways around their sanctions. I, I feel like that was also a message that was being sent to President Biden. Uh, it, that's possible. Yeah. I mean, I, I, China hasn't done that much to assist the Iranians. I mean, they'll, they'll continue buying their oil uh, covertly by using fake registries and, and pretending that it's coming from a different country. But, you know, they're, they're not willing to risk that much to openly help Iran uh, evade sanctions. Uh, with Russia, it might be a different case because Russia is a more significant economy and a much larger trading partner for them. And so it, it could be that they would be willing to take bigger risks. I, I think the, the the larger point about Russia-China cooperation against sanctions is that Russia has a lot of trading partners that are not going to want to be uh, pressed into service as part of the U.S. economic war. And the idea that, that they could be isolated in the same way that some of these smaller countries have been isolated economically is, is probably not feasible. Uh, you're, you're, I think you're going to see a lot of countries, uh, you know, ranging from India to even to Israel, that are going to be very wary of actually cutting economic ties with the Russians because they've they've spent so many decades cultivating good relations with them. And so if it were to come to uh, an escalation in Ukraine and then a massive economic war against Russia, I think you're going to see a lot of countries opting out of that war and sort of defecting, so to speak, uh, to the Russian side because they don't want to, to jeopardize those ties uh, if they don't have to. And that would then put the U.S. In a, in a very difficult position of having to then sanction who knows how many other countries uh, for doing business with the Russians. Uh, that, that way lies, I think, global economic ruin. And so we, we really don't want to have to go down that road. And I, and I wish 
in, in that sense, I wish they hadn't been making such loud threats about economic sanctions uh, leading up to now, because the U.S. is like by its hands in that. They've, they've basically trapped themselves into escalating an economic war if Russia escalates uh, through the use of force. And, and I, I think that's going to uh, be very destabilizing in ways that people haven't fully gamed out yet. Because once you start cutting trade links like that, then you, you give other states incentives to try to become more autarkic and, and self-reliant. Uh, and that, that's going to be bad for the global economy. Yeah, it's probably scaring away some of our allies, even our NATO allies. We keep talking about sanctions and cutting out and cutting off Nord Stream two, and uh, and and banks and, and whatnot. I, I have a feeling that that's playing into some of the hesitancy on the part of some of our key NATO uh, member partners, uh, including Germany. So uh, because you know, despite this attempt to make. Uh, the NATO alliance seem as though it's 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 uh, uniform and united. There is a ton of fractionalism going on right now, and it's not just sure. Germany. And part of that is exactly because of what you described, that there are so many uh, ties to Russia that exist uh, right now in terms of, of trade um, and uh, in, in particularly energy. And so... Um, you know, it, it's fine for us to, or thousands and thousands of miles away, to say let's sanction this person, go to war with the other. But um, when you're right in the neighborhood, and your livelihoods depend uh, on this maintaining the, these connections, you're going to think twice about about going to war. Right, and it, I think it does underscore the extent to which economic war, especially through broad sanctions, like we've seen. Uh, really, really is a, a kind of warfare. It's it's a, a hostile act. It's not, and and it's meant to be. Uh, the, there's this idea that sanctions are, are somehow an alternative to war, but but they they really they come out of wartime practices. Uh, that's the application of wartime practices in a time when you're not technically at war with someone, and so it's uh, it is a, a serious thing to contemplate, especially against a major power. And it's and I, I fear it's something where we're so used to just imposing them as a matter of course mm -hmm. that nobody has really thought through uh, what it will mean uh, if we have to to follow through on that threat. Uh, I, I'm still hopeful that the escalation isn't going to happen. That there may be uh, some diplomatic compromise reached. Uh, we, we saw the, the French president meeting with Putin uh, just this mm -hmm. week, uh, and there were some hints of of positive developments there. So it could be that we end up uh, finding a way to de-escalation, and I hope we do, uh, because if it doesn't work out, if, if the Russians do end up using force, uh, then you're going to see uh, a, a lot of worse outcomes for the, the wider world, uh, as it, not just because of what Russia does, but, but because of what we do to respond to it. Yeah, and I, I find it very ironic that we are approaching uh, the 50th anniversary of Nixon's trip to China in 1972, which in part was a gambit to um, sort of pull apart Russia and China and use uh, a new relationship with China as a wedge against Russia. And right. uh, 50 years later, 
uh, our lack of strategy, which that, that's exactly what it seems to me, a lack of strategy is actually bringing Russia and China together against us. Um, so uh, there you have it. Um, you know, as for, for all of Nixon's faults, he seemed to be a little bit more with it uh, in terms of like the uh, geopolitical enterprise than um, are, are the people that are in charge today. Sure. Well, and, and the thing to think about with uh, with the opening to China is that the U.S. there was not creating a rift uh, through its own uh, clever maneuvering. It was exploiting a rift that had already opened up. Yeah. And so they 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 took advantage of something that had happened kind of in spite of U.S. policy at the time, because it had been the practice during the Cold War in the first couple decades of the Cold War to view all communist states as part of a monolithic force, uh, and that. They, so that we ignored national differences, we ignored national rivalries, and treated them all as part of the same uh, adversary. And it was only uh, as the Sino-Soviet rift opened up, that we began to realize that that's not, in fact, how it works. Uh, and so we, we would be wise to try to, to identify rifts where they do exist, and then try to drive a wedge into them uh, to, to separate these states. But I think a lot of people are so enamored of this idea that we're in a conflict with authoritarianism writ large, uh, that if there's an authoritarian state uh, that we have differences with, we just lump them all into the same camp and treat them as if they are in an alliance when they aren't. And of course, by doing that, you give them incentives to then create the alliance that you imagined uh, <laughs> to exist. Yep. Uh, and, and, that obviously, if you want to prevent the combination of hostile powers controlling Eurasia, which is usually the way that people talk about these sorts of things, uh, this is exactly what you don't want to do, but it's what we've done. back, I have the distinct pleasure of introducing my friend and Quincy Institute colleague Jessica Lee to the show. Jessica is a senior research fellow in the East Asia program at the Quincy Institute, and her research interests include U.S. foreign policy toward the Indo-Pacific region with an emphasis on the Korean Peninsula. She has been very busy over the last year with her analysis being featured in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, National Interest, USA Today, The Washington Times, and Nation, Arms Control Today, and of course, our my news platform that I edit for, Responsible Statecraft. She has testified before the House Committee on Foreign Affairs, uh, Tom Lantos's Human Rights Commission, and has co-authored the 2021 Quincy Institute Report Toward an Inclusive and Balanced Regional Order, a New U.S. Strategy in East Asia. She is a non-resident senior associate fellow at the Asia Pacific Leadership Network, a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and a 2022 Arms Control Negotiation Academy fellow with the Negotiation Task Force at Harvard University. Welcome to the show, Jess. Thanks for having me, Kelly and Dan. So obviously we have we have the right person here to talk about this issue of Korea and U.S. policies. Uh, toward Korea and specifically uh, ongoing um, negotiations and struggles uh, with North Korea. Um, you know, the, we've, we've heard less and less about North Korea in the news 
uh, since Trump has gone. But what we have heard in the news has been uh, a little bit um, troublesome. Uh, the North Korea has uh, fired a number of missile tests since January, um, which speaks to the entire issue of U.S. policy. And I know that the talks have, have stalled. There has been no um, advancement on that front. Um, but one of the issues that the United States has made a key sticking point with uh, North Korea is denuclearization. So there they are. They're testing uh, ballistic missile, missiles. They're threatening to reopen the nuclear program. Jess, can you talk a little bit about the whole idea that we are ever going to get um, North Korea to stop uh, its its nuclear weapons ambitions, um, and that that denuclearization must come first before any other um, talks about North Korea or even on the the uh, or, or peace with um, South Korea can even continue. Yeah, thanks so much, Kelly, for that really hard first question. Um, and first of all, let me just thank you and Dan for your thought leadership in this platform. Um, I've enjoyed listening to your show, um, and uh, I know you always ask hard questions. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to kind of actually diving into sort of the crux of the matter, uh, which, as you pointed out, I think has to do with, you know, what is it that we're even asking North Korea to do, and is it a realistic goal? Um, as you know, there's some, some you know, division, uh, you know, within the foreign policy community on this very important question. Um, you know, I tend to believe that, you know, whether it is realistic or not, um, that it is important to maintain a long-term goal uh, of denuclearization, having less nuclear weapons on the Korean Peninsula, um, particularly given the negative response of Japan and South Korea to an open acceptance of North Korea's nuclear status. Uh, and it could also do some damage to the counterproliferation regime. But in the short to medium term, uh, we need to be more uh, pragmatic about what it is that North Korea would actually do. Um, you know, having invested millions uh, on its nuclear weapons program, is it really going to, you know, overnight say, you know what, this was all a mistake? Yeah, let's just give it all up. And, you know, all the scientists who have knowledge of nuclear bombs, like, we'll just transfer them to another country. I mean, how realistic is that? And so I think, you know, as Dan and others have already written about, you know, there's a lot that can be done in the short to medium term, you know, to get to a safer place on the peninsula. Uh, which, you know, is to have conversations around threat reduction, um, you know, how we avoid war and improve crisis management and communication, freezing of North Korea's nuclear and missile weapons programs, uh, and improving, you know, the overall bilateral relationship. And I think one of the things that, you know, people like myself would really, you know, advocated for a peace building, you know, uh, first uh, strategy on the North Korea issue is to have a policy where we can gradually change North Korea's incentives and the environment in which it is, uh, you know, uh, living uh, through more of a step-by-step -step confidence building measure so that over time, what currently may seem completely impossible <laughs> can actually become more possible. Um, and just to kind of close out this uh, kind of response, I think, you know, a book that uh, I think, Kelly, you've read and Dan might have as well, uh, that I'm working through right now is a book called Making the Forever War uh, by, uh, you know, Marilyn Young on the culture of politics and American yeah. militarism. And there's just so much insight in that book about, you know, the fact that um, the Korean War demonstrated, you know, to future American administrations that American wars could be waged with very little public enthusiasm and understanding. 
you know, the American public, for example, didn't really know how much U.S. was involved in South Korea from 1945 to the outbreak of the Korean War, whether it was to help suppress a popular left-wing nationalist movement, um, arm and train South Korean army and police forces, uh, or, you know, arrange a UN-supervised uh, election uh, that established a separate government in the South. So all to say, you know, this is an issue that um, I think has benefited from tremendous neglect and just the poverty, uh, you know, within sort of the policymaking community of any fresh thinking. Um, and so we have kind of locked ourselves in a very difficult situation where we keep talking about this lofty long-term goal that everybody wants, but it's just almost impossible to get to. So, you know, we are setting ourselves, you know, essentially for a, a very big disappointment. But the North Korea issue is not something that I think needs to be held you know, hostage to such kind of long-term goal. I think there's so much that we can do. And, and in fact, we do this all the time with countries. Um, and so North Korea shouldn't be in a, in a separate category of let's not touch it until, you know, basically North Korean regime collapses or, you know, something uh, of that scale happens overnight. I just don't think that's going to happen. I want to ask you another tough question. Uh, we, you know, we've had other things on our geopolitical plate, you know, Russia, Ukraine comes up first, uh, China. So the Biden administration has been a bit busy, busy but uh, I feel as though um, the Trump administration had had made North Korea an opening up dialogue uh, with with Kim Jong-un a lot more of a priority. And I know timing is obviously has is different. Do you think his approach was effective uh, for the time? Um, and would you like to see maybe a little bit more of a dialogue or direct dialogue between Biden and Kim Jong-un? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean, President Trump, uh, you know, for all uh, the criticism about, you know, the, the unconventional nature of his direct outreach uh, to uh, Kim Jong-un, uh, did, you know, prioritize this issue, uh, this issue. And uh, I think what ended up happening, uh, unfortunately, was that, you know, there was some internal disagreement, uh, particularly between, you know, Steve Began, his top, you know, envoy on this issue, uh, and sort of the more hardliners uh, in the administration, like John Bolton, who ultimately, you know, cautioned uh, Trump against, you know, any sanctions relief, um, which was, as you know, a, a big part of North Korea's ask in Hanoi. Um, you know, it, it that didn't have to be, I think, necessarily an entire lifting of all <laughs> UN Security Council uh, resolutions, but, you know, they wanted some, um, you know, a sense of kind of uh, demonstration from the U.S. that it was serious and that it wasn't just asking North Korea to do everything and take these big steps, uh, which I think makes perfect sense. So, um, you know, had President Trump uh, and, and his top negotiator, um, you know, been able to uh, reach a deal, uh, which I, you know, my sense is that it was close uh, and that it was sort of a last minute switch, um, again, because of this internal inviting I think it would have obviously been an historic uh, move. Um, and I do, you know, uh, look at uh, Republicans uh, in the Senate and the House during the period, uh, you know, of the Singapore and Hanoi summits, you know, who were, you know, lukewarm, but generally, you know, not obstructionist at all, you know, in terms of what Trump was trying to do. Uh, in fact, um, you know, this is just one of many quotes I was able to find. Uh, Senator John Kennedy, a Republican from Louisiana in the lead up to the Singapore summit said, quote, there's certainly nothing in the history of Kim Jong-un or his father or his grandfather that would demonstrate we should uh, be optimistic. But having said that, you've got to try. So, you know, I think there was a kind of a reluctant kind of acknowledgement that 
you know, ignoring North Korea problem uh, is, is a perilous route and that we have to try. Uh, we have to talk to the government and we need to figure out a, a less a stable, a more stabilizing way forward. So in that sense, you know, had President Biden really used, you know, the, the, the political support from the Trump administration period to kind of make a bipartisan case for it and say, look, my Republican predecessor started this process and I'm going to help, you know, reach a deal, you know, because this is such a nonpartisan, transpartisan issue. Uh, so I want the Republican colleagues, you know, who supported Trump to also support me. Let's not politicize this issue. And to do this very early on, uh, instead of, you know, waiting, uh, you know, um, on and on. And now here we are in a very political uh, time period with the South Korean presidential election next month. Uh, so it, it has sort of, um, you know, suffered, I think, from uh, just lack of attention, high level attention uh, in the early you know, period of the Biden administration, uh, where I think there could have a credible case could have been made. And certainly I think groups like Quincy Institute that you know, has a transpartisan kind of outlook would have been very supportive of. You know? um, so uh, that is, I think, a missed opportunity. Hi, Jessica. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, and I, I agree with you. I think Biden has let that slip. Of course, we know he has had other things on his plate, but uh, clearly uh, their approach to North Korea has been uh, one of uh, sort of putting them on the back burner. Uh, turning to South Korea, uh, President Moon's term is almost up. Uh, he will, uh, the, the presidential election happens next month. Uh, President Moon has called for an end of war declaration uh, for all of the, the parties to the Korean War to declare that the war is now over. He had hoped to have one done before his term ends. Uh, it, he's running out of time. Uh, what are the prospects of getting a declaration before he leaves office? And do you think his successor will keep pursuing that goal? Yeah, thanks, Dan. Um, you know, as you said, because we are so close to the uh, presidential election, uh, I do think that it's going to be very difficult for uh, the current administration, given its lame duck status, to uh, to reach a, um, an end of war declaration, um, not just by its own government, but of course by you know other parties of the uh, the Korean War. And as you know, technically South Korea isn't even a signatory of the armistice, so technically. Sure. Uh, it doesn't, you know, even have to declare uh, an end of war uh, per se. Um, and I think, you know, in general, what we have seen is is that, you know, this issue of an end of war declaration has, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, in, a, in a positive way gained a lot more attention here in Washington. Uh, because, as you know, uh, in the earlier part of the Moon administration, even when he was making high profile speeches and, and continuing to do that at UN General Assembly and other places, you know, there was generally not a lot of attention given, you know, to kind of his outreach. And I think people were uh, very skeptical. Uh, and in fact, some painted him as too eager, you know, almost, you know, like an appeaser uh, of North Korea. So there was, you know, not only kind of benign neglect, but also criticism uh, against, I think, uh, the Moon administration for being willing to uh, to negotiate and, and to find a more peaceful, uh, you know, way forward with North Korea. Um, and I think critics of this process uh, uh, has also sort of, you know, gone out of its way to sort of obfuscate uh, the meaning uh, of an end of war declaration. You know, some have said, well, what's the what's even the point of this if it has no legal status? Right. Why are you, you know, fixated on this one issue? And what I've uh, told uh, sort of the skeptics of, of the peace process is to say, you know, we uh, do need a peace treaty to uh, replace the armistice agreement. That's true. Uh, and such a treaty would have to be ratified by the Senate. But, uh, but a political statement saying the U.S. is no longer, you know, uh, no longer sees North Korea as an enemy, 
uh, you know, and that we're going to end our uh, kind of, uh, that there is no hostilities, uh, you know, uh, from the U.S. Uh, side, I think is significant. Uh, of course, uh, that is uh, just rhetoric if it is not backed by any meaningful policy change or action. Um, so, of course, uh, you know, uh, one would expect that such a, a more uh, open and flexible attitude would, you know, result in, you know, an, a more open and flexible kind of set of actions and policies. Um, and I think the Biden administration is trying to do that. I mean, it has said it will negotiate, you know, and talk to North Korea without preconditions anytime, anywhere. Now, as you know, Dan, you know, such kind of broad statements don't necessarily inspire a lot of hope and enthusiasm among uh, North Koreans because they think that, um, you know, U.S. is going to just simply, you know, uh, kind of uh, talk their way out of uh, making commensurate commitments, right? And so this is, you know, I think, uh, where uh, U.S. and North Korea just continually clash because both sides want to see more sincerity and, and more action, and both sides are blaming the other uh, for not being, uh, you know, uh, not being real, <laughs> and to sort of, you know, treat this as, as uh, kind of a, an issue where you know they can just kind of put all blame on the other side and really perpetuate a one-sided narrative about who's at fault, uh, rather than really, you know, using empathy and, and actually listening and, and negotiating as we are, as we do all the time with countries. Um, and so there is, I think, a, a strong amount of disdain, uh, you know, in, in talking with North Korea uh, that exists, particularly among, you know, uh, many in Washington who uh, feel like everything's been tried. <laughs> so there's no point, uh, you know, don't bother. Uh, you're just going to get burned. Uh, and I think you you saw that, you know, with, with uh, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, folks in the Obama administration uh, after the Leap Day Agreement fell apart. Um, and of course, in the earlier, you know, Clinton, Bush agreed framework, et cetera, where, you know, negotiators came out feeling very frustrated and, and very much led on. Um, and, you know, and there isn't, uh, I think, sufficient uh, acknowledgement that U.S. played an equal uh, role uh, in, in the demise of these agreements. It's always, you know, 100% of the blame goes to North Korea. Well, that's not very conducive to <laughs> new thinking uh, because you just perpetually sound like a defensive, you know, actor, right? One is who is wounded, who has no kind of agency. <laughs> uh, but U.S. is a powerful country and, and we absolutely have agency. In fact, one might say we have too much agency <laughs> and that the inter-Korean process may not ever materialize if U.S. insists on policies that effectively you know, make it very difficult for South Koreans to uh, to pursue peace in their own land. So I think all of these things really, um, you know, get at this issue that we talk about a lot and Kelly writes about a lot, which is, you know, how do we get U.S. to uh, think about the world and its place in less primacy-centered, less dominance-centered way? Uh, and I can't think of a more uh, kind of pressing example than the Korean Peninsula where, you know, U.S. had played such a major role. Definitely. And what uh, one of the things that the U.S. really hasn't tried is is offering sanctions relief. That's that's the one thing we always uh, want to hold back uh, because uh, if we were to offer it, that that would be seen as a reward and and rewarding bad behavior. And of course, we don't ever want to do that. Uh, or at least that's the way that it's sold. Um, we we were mentioning the presidential election coming up. Uh, one of the candidates in that election, uh, conservative opposition candidate Yoon Suk-yeol, uh, has raised the prospect of actually launching preemptive strikes against North Korea's hypersonic missiles in the event that there's a conflict, uh, which, of course, creates uh, some serious uh, dangers if the North Koreans think they're about to be attacked or, or fear that they might be attacked uh, at, during a crisis. Uh, how concerned are you about the destabilizing effects of such a policy if it were put in place? And do you think that this policy would actually be adopted? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Dan. I, I think um, this issue of North Korea's continued military buildup and what we've seen, you know, on, on the part of South Korea to also build up its conventional weapons capabilities um, is something that, you know, I think, again, you know, uh, points to the real dire need to scale back and dial down uh, the tensions that are just kind of continually building on uh, on top of one another. Um, to, you know, I, I think South Koreans, um, you know, understandably feel very frustrated uh, that even after, you know, what uh, President Moon has tried to do, um, you know, there has not been, you know, measurable p uh, progress. Um, but I think the the, the uh, conservative candidate that you mentioned, um, you know, Yoon Seok Yeol, uh, also kind of paints in too broad of a stroke, you know, uh, the Moon, uh, Moon administration's uh, policies. I mean, basically, Yoon says that it was a complete failure, uh, that the Korean peace process was just, you know, a waste of time. It, it, it yielded in nothing. Um, but in fact, there has, a, it, you know, a record uh, shows that it's been more stabilizing uh, during periods where North Korea is engaged in diplomacy compared to others, um, you know, other periods. Um, and so I do think that there is, uh, you know, kind of a dismissal uh, among uh, some of the, the most critical uh, elements of, of South Korean, uh, you know, society right now, uh, you know, who say like the Moon administration's uh, effort was uh, not effective. Uh, and that it should not have been pursued. And in fact, when conservatives, you know, come to power, they're going to do sort of the opposite of that, which, as you said, includes things like launching hypersonic missiles. So, you know, I think this is sort of where things are in terms of the, the South Korean uh, kind of, you know, political discourse. Um, as you said, you know, any kind of uh, retaliatory measures uh, by South Korea to perceive North Korean attacks would be highly destabilizing. Um, this would just be a nightmare scenario and nobody wants that. Um, and so, you know, we have to, uh, and and I think, you know, the, the conservative candidate, uh, Yoon, is really, you know, using this type of language you know, just to, to seem tough, right? Like I, I'm sort of the anti-moon, you know, I'm I'm here to like put North Korea in place. <laughs> and, you know, maybe that just gins up his base because they feel so frustrated. But I think the, the question for American uh, listeners and American policymakers is, you know, wh wh why are we in this place, you know, of an, a de facto arms race on the peninsula? You know, how do we get here? You know, why is it that we have seen so many missile launches and um, I, you know, ex fully expect there to be an ICBM launch as well by North Korea, because, you know, as you know, they've said this moratorium, the self-imposed moratorium is off. Um, and so, you know, we are having a situation where we're basically trying to uh, understand a region um, of more than, you know, 50, um, a country of more than 50 million people that is really reacting violently and negatively to any sort of peace first approach. And I think that's really, um, you know, in part a product of, of, of um, you know, U.S. and other countries not paying sufficient uh, interest and, and attention to this issue and sort of wishing that it will sort of get, you know, die down and, and gradually go away and that people will give up. Uh, but on something like this, people are not going to give up. I mean, this is their lives. I mean, you're living in, you know, if you're South Korea and you live there, there's no way this issue will ever go away. In fact, your situation is just continually going to get worse and worse the longer uh, this problem festers and the longer North Korea builds up uh, more and more of its military capabilities. So it's no surprise that South Koreans are, you know, in, in some ways uh, becoming more, uh, you know, frustrated and, and saying things that, you know, I think they themselves uh, probably know it is quite provocative to say, uh, but feel like that's just, you know, they've been left with such few choices at this point uh, that this is sort of the only, you know, politically, um, you know, uh, safe route to go. 
Sure, and, and the choice before them uh, coming up in March uh, between uh, Lee and Yoon uh, will will actually have, a, I think, a, a significant effect on which direction South Korean policy goes. Uh, do you do you think that the prospects for renewed inter-Korean engagement and rapprochement uh, really hinge or depend on the outcome of the presidential election? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I, I do think that we will potentially see a big pendulum swing away from, you know, what uh, the Moon administration tried to do, which was to maintain its alliance with the U.S., uh, but also, you know, focus on uh, inter-Korean diplomacy and reduce uh, reduction of tensions on the peninsula. Uh, it's very possible, as I said, with the conservative candidate, um, you know, uh, promising uh, these types of kind of retaliation um, and measures that, you know, there will not be any inter-Korean process um, and uh, that the room for, uh, you know, dialogue uh, between the two Koreas will uh, be narrowed significantly. Um, so it, it, it's a it's a very uh, complex issue. And, and you know, I, I'm obviously going to be watching the election results very carefully and you know, hopefully offering some comments afterward about what this means uh, in terms of U.S.-South Korea relations going forward. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, already, you know, I can start to see that there are a lot of really critical lessons uh, to be learned uh, because let's say the progressive uh, candidate, Lee Jae-myung, wins, right? And as you know, he's sort of, you know, articulated a lot of similar policies with the Moon government when it comes to engaging with North Korea and the importance of improving relations and, and things like that and pursuing peace. Um, if Lee Jae-myung wins, you know, what uh, can we expect uh, will be different? you know, this time around, right? Um, I think that is a logical and a very important question uh, for Americans to ask, uh, any, any, you know, Korea watchers to ask. You know, is it realistic to assume, uh, expect a different outcome given uh, just frankly how much effort, um, uh, admirably so, you know, uh, the Moon administration placed on this issue? I mean, as you know, last uh, October, you know, the South Korean National Security Advisor was in Washington. There was a flurry of conversation about, you know, whether the text of an end of war agreement was near. Um, and so there was just a lot of high level engagement, I think, on the part of South Korea to try to midwife, you know, some sort of a, a, a statement, right, that could then usher quickly into, you know, uh, negotiations. So given, you know, all that attention and energy that was placed uh, on the end of war declaration specifically, and also just broadly speaking, you know, really raising global awareness uh, through platforms like UN, uh, on this issue, um, you know, let's say uh, the the progressive uh, you know candidate Lee wins and he does something very similar or even more. <laughs> well, how would the U.S. react? Will it's you know will it react favorably and say, "Wow, this is great"? You know, we want our allies to help reduce tension. We don't want war. Uh, we don't want to get dragged into a war in Korea. So yeah, we should absolutely support South Korea. I mean, do you think that will be the reaction, or do you think the reaction will be, "Huh"? Why is South Korea doing things, you know, that doesn't really seem to like without checking with us first, kind of, you know, there's like that kind of sense of like, but you have to clear that with us. Like you can't go too, you can't be too forward uh, because, you know, we're in control. So, you know, you have to wonder like what the U.S., uh, you know, uh, Washington's uh, kind of establishment view on, on you know, a, a concerted effort will look like. And, and my guess is that it will be, you know, quite negative again. Um, and so that, you know, I think goes back to this uh, neurosis I describe about, you know, wanting this issue to really be about a U.S. issue uh, when, you know, a fundamental frame uh, change is, is needed. 
uh, to kind of relinquish that mindset and to say, like, this needs to be resolved by the Korean people. We will help our allies as much as possible, but this ultimately has to come from them. Uh, and besides, as you noted, you know, with Ukraine and all of these other issues, it's not as though we have a ton of bandwidth to just give away either. So why can't we be honest about sort of our limited capabilities um, and, you know, empower those uh, who have so much at stake uh, to lead this process? I think that is the only way to move forward. But it's going to, again, require that uh, you know, shift in mindset that, you know, may be hard to come by, at least in the in the near term. Thank you, Jess. Um, I think we're going to have to leave it there uh, for timing purposes, but I hope to have you on again um, as as this develops, because I'm sure it will at some point. I really like your uh, your point about knowing our limitations. Uh, I, I just all too often Washington, Washington, that seems to be obviously the last uh, <laughs> the uh, the last thing people are thinking about is 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 putting this on, giving this over to the the actual people that this these policies affect. Um, but there you go. I'm so glad that you're working on this issue yourself, and thank you so much for for coming on crashing the war party. Yes, thank you for having me, and thank you for all your contributions on this issue. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.